Man, for, for us, we may find ourselves somewhere on that scale of the goodness of God. Uh, maybe, maybe for some of us, uh, we hear his goodness is running after me, and, uh, and, and we are thrilled. We are absolutely thrilled. We are absolutely uh, overwhelmed with, with that reality for our hearts. We are absolutely overcome with what that means for our lives. And, and, and we, we feel like our cup couldn't be any fuller, more full. <laughs> couldn't be any more full. And, and then maybe for, for, for some of us, we're on the other end where we hear those words and his goodness is running after me and uh, we feel like that is so distant from our lives. That that reality is so far from our experience and, and the decisions we're faced with maybe uh, press us more than we'd prefer. And, and that goodness feels so elusive and, and so challenging and so distant. And, and then maybe for others of us, we're somewhere in the middle <laughs> where, where we have just come out of something challenging and, and so we're moving towards and longing to experience more of God's goodness chasing after us, or we're nervous about what might be right around the corner waiting for us, and so it's hard to give ourselves to, to that goodness of God, and, and so we're, we're challenged by that. Uh, in Luke, that has been uh, what we've been longing for. Luke has been calling us to find certainty in Christ to anchor ourselves and, and find confidence in who he is in the midst of wherever life may find us. And, and this morning's text, I, I think, is no different. It, it leads, we're in this confrontation area where Jesus is heading to the cross and, and he provides some clarity around decisions, how we attempt to make decisions in this life. And so it feels to me like there are decisions that are easier than others where some decisions we immediately say yes to or we affirm. Uh, when, when I proposed to Casey, Casey didn't hesitate or think about it. She said yes. She said, yes, I, I, I would love to marry you. And you could wrestle with whether that really happened or not. I was there. It happened. She said yes. Uh, um, and then there's other decisions where it feels like maybe there's some tentativity. Uh, what should we have for dinner tonight? And that one seems to be uh, just a firestorm of, well, I don't know. What do you want for dinner tonight? And so there's that tentativity around that decision. Um, when, when we actually did get married, Casey, uh, Casey uh, when asked, do you take this man to be your husband, said yes. But her uncle uh, had offered her uh, $1,000 to, when asked that question, uh, to respond, no. And then quickly say, yeah, I'm just kidding. Yes, yes. Casey didn't even go there. She just said yes. But in retrospect, we went, man, that would have really helped out with the honeymoon, right? <laughs> so some decisions we say, I mean, it's just, it's yes, it's easy and, and quick. And other decisions feels like there's tentativity. Um, you know, as we, as we go through life, maybe there's challenging decisions that you're working through. Uh, where do I send my kids to school? Maybe, maybe that's been uh, a challenging question lately. Uh, how do I interact 
in a, in a workplace that maybe doesn't share the same value set that I have or the same set of uh, values? What, what, do I, what do I do with that? How, how do I move forward? If I'm asked to participate in something, how, how do I determine if it is something of value and something worth engaging in as, as someone who treasures Jesus? This morning, that is a little bit of where the text is going to take us. We live in a secular society that promotes values that contradict the principles God has designed for everyone's greatest joy. How might we, as Jesus followers, interact lovingly and meaningfully with those around us? Here's the text this morning. It comes from Luke 20. And Jesus is in confrontation with these Pharisees and scribes. Luke 20, 19 to 26. Here's how Luke records it. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Last week, we talked about Jesus sharing this parable about a man that went to a far country and left the vineyard to his servants, to his tenants. And, and Jesus was speaking directly against these Pharisees and scribes about how they were acting and treating him. And they understood that. They understood that it was against them but they feared the people. Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And so they asked him, cunningly, deceptively, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And then the question they posed to him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. The big idea of the text where where Luke is taking us is in this confrontation that is increasing and Jesus is engaging in it. In another attempt to trip up Jesus, he provides a clever response that silences his opponents. Within that, we're gonna see some action on how we might live as well. Jesus indicates that. But the big idea is Jesus continues to escalate this confrontation as he is in control moving towards the cross. So pray with me and and we uh, we will jump in to what Luke has for us this morning. Jesus, you are so kind. Uh, Thank you for for your work in our lives, rolling with us as things come our way, as circumstances arise. Uh, On this scale of this goodness of yours we experience, meet us where we're at. And if there are challenging decisions that we are being faced with as we engage the world around us, bring Bring those to light, bring those to our heart and how you might faithfully call us to respond. Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory. We pray, amen. So three ideas we're walking through this morning from the text. The the big idea, Jesus' opponents again attempt to trap him politically and religiously. And yet what does Jesus do? Evades the trap. And then offers, not fully, doesn't comprehensively offer it, but offers, reveals how those who treasure him live in a secular society. So 
Here's that first point we're headed to. They set a trap for him. You heard it in the story, right? Malicious, crafty, and, and it starts because why? Feeling insulted. Verse 19 shows us. What, what prompts a little bit more of this action? The scribes and the chief priests. Those are two groups that don't necessarily like each other. They're, these guys aren't aligned. They hold different views. Some are more in it with Rome. Some are more in it with the Jewish community and would not want Rome in their lives. And so the interesting thing Luke is trying to show us is they have a common enemy. Who is that? Jesus. They both don't like Jesus. And so they set up a trap. But where does it start? Because they felt insulted. Now, we never do that, right? We never, in our minds, we never think, oh, man, this person hurt me. So you know what I'm going to do? When they say this, then I'm going to say this. And then when they say that, then I'm going to rally some friends of mine, and then we're going to be able to be a little bit more codified so then we can respond this way. We never do that, do we? We are above that kind of stuff. So what, what do they do next? They start building this coalition where it's not they themselves, but they send spies to trap Jesus. Verse 20, so they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they themselves weren't immediately in the situation. They built a coalition and sent spies to trap him. And then the tactic they use is this overwhelmingly false flattery. And yet, catch what they say and see if it strikes you as interesting. Here's what they say. Verse 21, they say and they ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the ways of God. Do they believe that? No. No. And yet, what they're declaring about who Jesus is, is true. That he is teaching rightly, and he truly teaches the way of God without partiality, without judgment. And then, and then they ask this question, this complex question. Uh, and trying to trip him up, that's incriminating. Here's the question. So we know you speak the way of God. Teach us, tell us, is it lawful to give tribute, tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And so, I mean, that's, that's a tricky question because all of the coins bore this image, Tiberius Caesar. And on the coin, it read, Son of God, son of the divine. Augustus was the divine, the divine emperor. Tiberius, his son, the son of the divine. And on the backside, it would have a picture of his mom, Livia, the high priest, the wife of Augustus. Give a shout out to your mom, right? That's a good thing. So, so every coin bore this image. And, and it feels like it went beyond tax. It was fascinating to read this element. So I want to read a quote from one of the commentaries that describes what this tribute was. It, it was complicated and complex because it was threefold. The, the word to refer to tribute is paid to a foreign ruler, whether it's a land tax or poll tax. And the tax meant 
to the Jews, one, economically, it represented an additional bitter financial burden since it was added to other civic and religious taxes. The result was that the tax totaled nearly 30 to 40% of a person's income. Politically, the tribute went to support the hated imperial court in Rome and the pagan cult of the Roman state. It kept the subject nation every ever mindful of its domination by a superior Roman power and represented tacit assent to the legitimacy it, it promoted. It, would, it said this is a legitimate organization, <laughs> empire, government, to the legitimacy of these institutions. And theologically, it was an infringement of the first commandment with the blasphemous imagery and a denial of God's ownership of the land. In three ways, this tribute added some complexity to how Jesus would respond. And yet, what does Jesus do? Evades the trap. He steps in and offers. I don't think he dodges the question. I don't think he tries to skirt around it. He, he answers it, but he answers it in the most profound way. Here's how he answers it. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. He understood they weren't there genuinely asking to learn. And instead they were trying to trip him up. And so what options? What were the options that he had? If he answered yes. Are you guys with me this morning? So stinking good. Kind of is a fair response. So, so I, I, this is neither here nor there. Um, but I know you're interested in my life, so I'm going to share. So this Saturday, um, it was stinking fun. We, we play basketball, so I'm a coach for our girls, head coach, and then uh, I assist for the boys. And, um, and uh, just had an absolute, this is where my sinful nature comes out. So we're, we're playing this other team, and I think we have a fairly good team. And, uh, and so, so, but it's eight and nine-year-olds, right? It's thinking eight and nine-year-olds. One of the girls on my team steps out of bounds, and the ref says, well, it's back to purple balls, our ball, right? Giving them grace. What does the other coach do? He's like, no, 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 it's out of bounds. It's our ball. It's gray ball. I'm like, come on, it's, it's, get grace. Grace abounds. For the rest of the game, though, grace did not abound in my heart as much because they committed much more fouls than we did, much more uh, um, travels and double dribbles. What do you think I did every time there was a double dribble or travel? I pointed a travel, purple ball. Let's go, purple ball. It was a moment of growth. Anyway, the trap. <laughs> It's a trap. That's maybe Jesus was trapped. Anyway, the trap. If they say yes, what happens? Well, they, they actually are frustrated. Jesus is frustrating the Jews. He's, he's frustrating because they're with him thinking he's this Messiah coming to take out the Romans. And, and so they frustrate the Jews and, because they see the Romans as their oppressors. But if he says no, well, now he frustrates the Romans. And they see Jesus as a rebel and a traitor and, again, would commit him to the governors in this jurisdiction. And so the, these guys are happy either way. You answer yes or no, we're happy either way. And yet Jesus does something fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. He says, show me a denarius. Now, what could he have done? He could have went directly down to that statement then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the gods the things that are God's. But instead of answering their question immediately, he asked them that question first. 
And so, uh, so I wasn't sure whether to do this or not, um, but, but we are going to do it. And just believing it is of God, I reached into my wallet this morning, considering whether I should do this or not. And, uh, and, and uh, I found $2 bills. And so how many services do we have here? How many gatherings do we have? Two. So I thought, man, this is of God. We're going to do this illustration. So I need a volunteer real quick. <laughs> come on, Gregory. You want to come on up? Come on, Gregory. Will you grab this mic real quick, Gregory? It's down here. Tom thought about it. Tom, did you? Andrea. Andrea held her hand down. Come on up, Gregory. Nice, Gregory. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. And you're going to give Mike a shout out. Your friend Mike. <laughs> so Greg, Gregory's a good man around here, and, and we are going to, Gregory, you are going to take the place of the two of us, of the two of us, one of us can be Jesus, and so we're going to, I think everybody would want you, of the two of us, they believe that would be you, so you're going you're gonna to take the role of Jesus in this particular situation, and, and I'm going to act as the spy, so we're going to extend the realm of imagination for a second, you guys with me, is that okay? So we're going to pretend for a second that we uh, live... And uh, in, in and around the time of, who was the first president of the country? George, George Washington. Washington. There we go. Nice. So we're going to pretend that George Washington is currently the president. And, uh, and who's on the dollar bill? George Washington. George Washington. So we're going to pretend that we live right now in the time of George Washington. He's our current president, and he is also on our currency. And so I come as a spy intending to trip up Jesus... Uh, I ask a question. I ask a question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to George Washington or not? And, and what is the question Jesus responds with? And the clue's up on the screen. What's on a $1 bill? Come on. Ah, I happen to have one right here. It's, it's George Washington. And so Jesus is doing something fascinating in this moment. What just happened? And Gregory, you're staying up here for one second. What just happened? He asked a question. And what did it then do for me? What did I just provide? Yeah, the very currency that I was attempting to trip him up with. I'm now in some way complicit to the very thing I'm accusing him of because I utilize this in my day-to-day. He, he returns back through a question, helping them. It's fascinating. Don't miss this kind of stuff, right? He actually helps them see in the very thing they're trying to trap him up with, they're actually participating in as well. Here you go, Gregory. That's for you. Thanks, Greg. You can have a, give Gregory a hand. Thank you, Gregory. Nice job. Nice job. <laughs> I find that fascinating. Because he could have simply said, you're a gentleman and a scholar. He could have just went straight to the answer, but he doesn't. He says to them, who's on the denarius? Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? To which they obviously know. No, no one has to guess. Everyone understands who's on there. It's Tiberius Caesar. And yet, why does he do it? They attempt to trip him up, and yet he shows them they are complicit 
in what they're trying to accuse him of. And then he goes to the question. So then render to Caesar what's Caesar's. From my vantage point, he's just bamboozled them. He's just like stumped them. They're floored by that question and response. They weren't expecting that at all. And then he says, so therefore, based upon your own admission of how you live your life, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Because don't miss the big idea. What's the big idea? We're moving towards the cross. They're trying to, to convict him. They're trying to stir up controversy. And Jesus is constantly smarter and evades every trap set for him because he is determining the details. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and, the God, and to God the things that are God's. And they're bewildered. That they do not know how to respond. How does Luke tell us that? He tells us they are absolutely floored by his response. Verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. That Jesus is ultimately in control of the details moving every step of the way. And he gives us some language in there. So we just want to sit in that language for a little bit if that's okay. Because he seems to reveal how those who treasure him live in the midst of a secular society. And so, though not in this specific text, in this specific text, there's not much there, right? Intentionally. He, he doesn't share some needed details for what we might actually do. So we're going to use this and, and go a little outside to another biblical author. But what are some of the questions we wrestle with? Because some people use this to make all kinds of layers, right? So if, if things are given to God, well, then we'll give those to God. And if we'll give things to Caesar, then we'll give things to Caesar. And then there must be things for us, so we'll take those. But he doesn't tell us that. He doesn't tell us the scope of how these things work. And he shows some relationship by including the word and to show that these are connected. But it doesn't show us how. Instead, what he says is then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What, what belongs to God? I believe in you. Be brave. Someone be brave. We do. There you go. Everything. Ah. Render to God's, what is God's? Everything. Us included. Any political authority, they have authority. Why? Because God chose to give it to them. So render what is God, what is God's to God? Everything. Do we see our lives and every breath through that grid? And so then, what might it look like? Jesus reveals how those who treasure him live in a secular society. Jesus is even in control of secular governments. And so in joyful submission to God, we happily submit to civil authorities. And yet there's a challenge in that. I don't know where your heart went in that statement. Render to God's what is God's everything. 
And as we live, it's all his, anything we breathe, and so we happily submit. And yet there's some challenges in there. There's some challenges that at least spark in my heart. That the values of culture increasingly conflict with ways that God tells us will be for our greatest good. There's an increased uh, at odds that take place. And then it seems to me we're tempted to yield to our culture because it's just easier. I'm, I'm done trying to lovingly stand it. It's just, I'm, I'm tired. And so it's just easier. It's just easier to yield in this accelerantly complex world. And then as values conflict, our moral anchors lead to being increasingly seen through the lens of hate speech. Anything you say that could cause me to feel a certain way, I'm going to accuse you of hate speech. And that accusation isn't always one that I enjoy receiving. And there's one more, and I want to sit in this one before we get to the other three, but there's one more that that hits my heart. And, And the challenge is as we go through our Monday to Saturdays, as I coach on the basketball floor, how might I live a decompartmentalized life? Because we tend to, in our world, what do we tend to do? We have all these buckets. I have a lot of great buckets, and they're good things. And they're really good things. It doesn't feel like it's often in the licentious things of life, but the challenges are often found in Netflix and apple pie. Because in all these things, what's one more box we seem to include? Christ, my faith, God. I have all these things and and I have God too. He's one of the things that I include in my life. And yet, what is the challenge that we experience when we live in a secular society and attempt to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God's what is God's? The challenge is, he's in everything. And so our faith invades every aspect of our life. Everything? You mean like when I get angry with the kids or my spouse? That counts too? Or, or, or when I think about different scenarios that might take place in the future and my heart is filled with worry and stress and anxiety? Like my faith should be invested in that area as well? Or when I go to the groceries and, and I make decisions about what I'm purchasing? Or in my hobbies, when I work on my car and, and I fly fish? I'm enjoying fly fishing lately. I don't know if you know this. Wisconsin has some of the best Wisconsin or streams in the country for fly fishing. What are my hobbies? Does my faith impact all these areas? Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And so we attempt to live that out. And it's less clear, again, because it's not the point here. Jesus, the primary idea is he's evading the trap set for him brilliantly. But he's not dodging the question. Paul picks this thought up later in Romans 13. Here's what Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Writing in the midst of an oppressive 
Roman Empire, here's what Paul says to his readers. Let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. You mean no one is in any place of leadership unless God wants them there? Yes. Man, shoot. This is where, oh man, this is where some of this stuff, some of this stuff is, is, uh, is, is, is related. I didn't plan on this. Maybe this is for you. This struck me just in the moment. Acts 12, the death of Herod. This is Acts 12, 20 to 25. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country food. And on an appointed day, Herod, the ruler, put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God, not a man. What do you think happened next? He's a political ruler sitting on his throne declaring that he is God. And the people are affirming that. What do you think happens next? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. <laughs> now, now you read that and you go, this is why I can't trust the Bible. Like, that's just stupid, right? What do you mean he's eaten by worms? He had like earthworms crawling around him, like some horror movie, like teeth started coming out. Josephus... A Jewish historian picks up the same story and tells us from a secular world, Herod saw a bad omen, an owl of some kind, and, and then he struck sick for a week and was eaten by what might be another word for worms, maggots, so parasites. A virus in his stomach makes sense in an ancient world that didn't have great hygiene. Struck by parasites. Now that's a physical reality that took place. And yet what does the author, what does Luke tell us in Acts happen? God determined who was sitting in any particular political or leadership role. Do you see the world through that grid? For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Verse 6, or verse 5, For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you will also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. You mean tribute to Caesar? Attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. And yet it feels like an increasingly complex world. How do I determine how to navigate that? I wanna offer one grid that, that might apply to one or two of our situations. What might I do? How do I render to God if he he's owns everything? How do we faithfully move forward? I think the first step would be this. We just gather data on the situation we're engaging in. 
How might I know on how to apply and render to God's what is God's? You tend to know that I'm a verbal processor. Does that strike anyone as odd or new? That's not new information. Allie's like, that is not new information. We, we gather data. I tend to do that by discussing with other thoughtful people about what's going on in my life and the circumstances. Uh, others of you might love to just internally process the ideas. You have a situation you're attempting to make a decision on, and so you gather data. And then we reflect. We, we long to be biblically saturated. So what would be a faithful biblical response given a situation saturated with desperate and dependent prayer? God, help me, guide me. Reveal to, to me the best decision in, in this particular area of life. And then design a course of action. Whether that's informal or formal, determine steps you might take. What might it look like to step forward in this situation? And then what might be the last encouragement? Act. Act with the hope of the promise of God that says, even if this is a wrong decision, God is working all things together for the good of those who trust him. So we hope in the promise of God and we understand that every choice has an effect. Every choice we make will come with implications, but we make it willingly in faith, believing this is the course of action that is best in our conviction. And so we, we step we gather data, we reflect, we design a course of action, and then we act. And so I want to spend a few minutes on just some takeaways, because Monday's coming, right? What would it look like if this was the grid? Monday matters, it's coming. Maybe we're over here and, and our glass couldn't be more full, and the goodness of God is overflowing in our hearts. Or maybe over here we're challenged, and the goodness of God feels distant. What might it look like as we move forward? Here's some encouragements. We recognize the ways the value of culture increasingly conflict with the ways God tells us it will be for our greatest good. We continue to gather data and work through it. We were watching some innocuous Netflix show the other day. Just something, just, it was uh, uh, finding love. It was special needs kids that are going on dates. I loved it. It was cool. And then one of the couples were looking for a same-sex partner. And I said, why are we watching this? We just fast forward. We don't need to consume this. So we gather data and we reflect. So one of the trusted voices is my wife. What are we involving our lives in? What are we choosing to consume? And then we pursue those trusted voices. We gather as a church to work through the biblical text. And we scatter back to our homes, our neighborhoods, our life groups, we recognize the ways the value of the culture is increasingly in conflict. One of the things that's been on my heart, marriage. God is still gracious in the midst of the pain of divorce. And simultaneously, sometimes we hear the voice of culture and we say, I'm just taking the easy way out. I'm just, I'm just giving up. I'm going to find someone who loves me for me, right? And, and, and don't hear me say, God doesn't still work. And I feel like I see just the pain of marriage all over the place in our culture. Just follow your heart is the, is the language often used. And I go, man, sometimes that heart is pretty devious and selfish in the way it's looking for, for, for joy. So we recognize the values that culture is shouting at us. Second, there's an awareness that Jesus is even in control of secular governments. Do we have that grid? Do we believe that? 
Or do we go, you know, he's involved somewhat. I heard a phrase, and if you want to talk about it later, it struck me as interesting. Moralistic, therapeutic deism is, is, the, is the worldview that many people enter in with. Moralistic, it's about behavior modification. Therapeutic, it, it is about somehow uh, solving, solving my emotional needs uh, independent from God, and then deism, but God is distant outside of the world. And so we increasingly find confidence in what is assured in eternity, living with nothing to prove and nothing to lose. I, I forget who the quote's from, but you can't, the U, there's no U-Hauls on the back of hearses, right? You can't take this stuff with you. And, and so we live with nothing to prove with this increased confidence of eternity, and we start seeing circumstances of life through the grid of opportunity. God, what are you inviting me into? God, what do you have for me in faithfully following you in this circumstance? I've had some people say, hey, David, you should come solve this for me. And I go, by God's sovereignty, you are the one that heard it. You're the one in the middle of it. What does God have for you? Do we see the circumstances of life through the grid of opportunity? And then we actively and frequently engage in our society as Jesus' salt and light actively and frequently engage. Always act and speak with respect towards those whom God has ultimately placed in authority, no matter how much we may disagree, that we believe God has actually put them there. And so the spirit of the age feels one of anger and one of pain. Might we offer and speak with respect towards those with whom God has ultimately placed in authority? With a loving, compassionate, Jesus-centered attitude, might we work to promote Jesus' values in our culture? Every situation we step in, do we enter it with a, with a desire to actually point people to more of Jesus' values? Unless you're on the basketball court and then you just blatantly say, that's a travel with purple ball. No, no, no. That was probably another area where I could have been more loving and compassionate. If there is an idea, we have this Everyday Missionary Fund to apply for, to support. We want to help whatever idea might be bubbling in you to engage and invest that way. And then love genuinely in actions as well as words all those who desperately need to experience God's love. When you walk into your workplace this week, is there someone that comes to mind that, that seems so far <laughs> And yet, might you enter in to show genuine love as a reflection of your faith and hope in Christ? Who is that person? We expect to be misunderstood and judged by others. Is that your expectation? When you enter in situations pointing people to get off the throne of their heart, what do you think is most likely going to be the response? I think there's an expectation that it is a journey, not an immediate seal the deal. Are you willing to endure long enough being put up in the wrong? Man, so many. You guys got time for one more sidebar? No, we don't. We don't have time. You got time? So there's this quote. Shoot, man. Dear Jesus, help us. There's this quote. by a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. 
You ever heard of him? He has this quote that's always floored me. When we expect to be misunderstood and judged by others, are we willing to be put up with by being and by seeing in the wrong with the hopes of bringing restoration? Here's what he says. He said, if one is truly to succeed in leading a person to a specific place, one most first and foremost take care to find him where he is and begin there. This is the secret in the entire art of helping. Anyone who cannot do this is himself under a delusion if he thinks he is able to help someone else. In order to truly help someone else, I must understand more than he. Yes, Jesus is the answer. He didn't say that part. But certainly first and foremost, understand what he understands. If I do not do that, then my greater understanding doesn't help him at all. If I nevertheless want to assert my greater understanding, then it is because I am vain or proud, and basically, instead of benefiting him, I really want to be admired by him. All true helping begins with a humbling. The helper must first humble himself under the person he wants to help and thereby understand that the help is not to dominate but to serve, that the help is not to be the most dominating but the most patient, that the help is the willingness for the time being put up with being in the wrong, and not understanding what the other understands. That we follow Jesus on the road to the cross, and and we demonstrate genuine love, knowing that it's probably not going to be received immediately. And yet, simultaneously, we avoid seeing other people as the enemy. They are enemy. In this sense, we don't have enemies in this world. Paul tells us who the enemy is. Who's our enemy? It's not flesh and blood. It's the devil that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour faith. Who's the enemy? These twisted people's minds, the people we interact with are prisoners of war that Jesus is longing to free in his kingdom advancing in this world. We avoid seeing others as the enemy and instead we pursue others' perspective speaking gently, intelligently, and convincingly. I love reruns. I love old shows. There's one guy that embodies this for me mostly. And if you're under the age, I don't know, certain age, you probably have no clue who this guy is. But a guy that embodies this is a fictional character. His name was Columbo. (laughs) And and Columbo would come in unassumingly, and and he just sparked curiosity. And, And he'd let these questions gnaw at the listeners gently, He wasn't perceived as intelligent and convincingly, yet we understood as the watchers that he was intelligent and convincing in the way he brought people to clarity. And then, I don't often talk about political views. You can obviously guess that I have them, much like all of you. Vote for those who reflect God's views. And yet we don't often talk about that here. Why? Because there's far, something far more consequential that we talk about every single week. It's life with Jesus. So I got three other encouragements, and I'm going to invite the worship team up for this. They're more spiritual in nature. We experience God's forgiveness, and we promote it to others. We don't run from sharing the pain points in our life. We just understand they're all there all the time. And sometimes culture says, ah, you're, you're nuts. You're supposed to have it maybe put together. Not share all that with those around you. Maybe go and share it in a distant closet somewhere instead. In the church, we express and promote 
I'm another beggar on the journey who's found some bread and I want to share this with everyone. I, I have challenges in my life. I need other people walking alongside me. We don't say, hey, I'm struggling in my marriage, but I'm not going to tell anybody. We don't say, hey, I'm having challenges with my kids, but you know what? That's, that's just our issue. We, we share broadly God's forgiveness, not judging one another, but graciously walking alongside, experiencing God's forgiveness and promoting it to others. And then second, we experience and promote that Jesus love. We, we promote Jesus' love above all other issues. At the depth of his love, he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He reconciled us to himself so that we could have life in his name. That is what we celebrate most of all. And then a phrase we often hear, um, God is good all the time. Uh, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Doesn't feel like maybe at Hillcrest we say that as often maybe as maybe we should or I'd want to. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. We are amazed. Every day we wake up and take another breath. We see his goodness showering our lives. Some days we feel that tank more full and we see his goodness all around us. And, And other times... We look at our circumstances and our choices and we're not sure how do we render to God what is God's and we feel overwhelmed and he feels so distant. And so we lean in and we are amazed, trusting that God is good all the time and we hope in his name. Pray with me as we continue in worship. Jesus, you're so kind. Help us see and experience more of your forgiveness so that we could embody that more in our day today. Thank you, Jesus for the hope in your name.